Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we doing today? All right, man. Hey, look, I'm not going to lie to you people because I don't want to do that. I like you. I dislike leaping forward, okay? Just not a fan of it. I don't understand people that are at the 9 a.m. Clearly, people were excited, and I got to look at you and say, if you're a morning person, I, I just don't understand how that phrase makes sense. It's like when people say something that's called a fun run. It just it doesn't connect with me. And if you're that kind of person, we're never going to see eye to eye. And that's okay. And people told me after my kid came into this world that I'd become more of a morning person. That's a lie. That's just a lie, right? And here's the difference. You know you're a morning person if you wake up in the morning and you say, hooray, another day is here, right? I wake up in the morning now and still say, why is this happening to me? <laughs> I have a better reason to get up now. But uh, either way, we're here. I'm thankful we're here. It's worthy to be here, no matter how you woke up this morning. And we're going to talk about some Bible today and talk about some God today. We are in the last week of our ser- sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 6. We'll have some stuff on the screens for you if you don't. <laughs> and as we talk about the Lord's Prayer, what we find ourselves in is the end of it. And today's an interesting day. It's, it's the end of the Lord's Prayer, and I started thinking about endings. And it's some of my favorite endings. It's spring break week for a lot of people. And I remember growing up when my family would take spring break trips, we would only go to see in-laws. And that would mean that we would drive to either South Dakota or Iowa. Either way, that's 14 plus hours in a car, a Suburban, with three boys in the back seat, right? And this was before seatbelts were a popular thing. So you just throw all the seats down. And my family actually, my, my dad and mom, to keep their sanity, bought this like 13-inch TV. Because this was before I anything. Pad, pod, phone. There were no screens that you could put in front of your face. And so... They had this 13-inch TV, and they'd wedge it between the front seat and the passenger seat and plug it in through the cigarette lighter, because, again, that was a thing we were for back in the day. And, and we would pick a movie, and, and we'd rotate, and I'd pick one, then my brother, then my other brother, then back to me. And one of the movies that we picked again and again and again was, you might know it, you might not, Cool Runnings. I love this movie. It is the movie of my childhood. It's a story about a Jamaican bobsled team, which, if that doesn't grab you from the start... Um, and, and Disney got their hands on it. I don't know if it's the actual ending of the actual story, but the ending of this movie is so good. They're actually in contention for a medal, and their, their sled is rusty and old, and they just did a paint job on it, you know, and they crash at the very end, like 100 yards away from the end. And this one guy needed to know if he could finish the race, and they all wanted to finish together, so they, they picked this thing up, and they carried it across the finish line. I still get goosebumps when I see her talk about it, you know? I love good endings. Good endings remind us what all the middle part, the main part was about in the first place. And so in the Lord's Prayer, what we find at the end is we find a reflection on the purpose of prayer in the first place. And so far in the Lord's Prayer, if you haven't been with us, this is where we've been. This is how it goes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then it ends. And, and so it goes, forgive us our trespasses. I want to put this in context. As we forgive those who trespass against us, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And then for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And why that's in brackets and why today is a fun day for me is because half of you right now, probably three quarters, are reading this in your Bible and you're saying those words aren't in here, right? And, and 25% of you are saying they're right here. What are you talking about? Let's fight, right? It's this idea that, that some of the words that you're reading is there and some of it's not. There's this natural tension between this, what is called the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, the end of it. And so what I want to do this morning is spend the first 10 or 15 minutes and, and talk about why it's in some Bibles and not others, and then we're going to talk about it. And I think it's worthy to talk about, even if it maybe wasn't in the original manuscripts, even if Jesus didn't actually say it a couple thousand years ago, I think it's worthy to talk about. And so um, before we do that, we're going to pray for a time together because this is Crossroads Bible Church and we're talking about a verse today that might not be in the Bible. <laughs> so we need some prayer. <laughs> but really, we believe two things at Crossroads every Sunday we want to see happen. We want to know God more. And what that means is we dive into the scriptures. And what that means is we recognize that as we study the scriptures to try and know a God we can't ever fully know and that's not threatening, that's beautiful because he's bigger than us and I need the God that saves me to be bigger and stronger than me is, is we trust that the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart as we read the text. That God lives inside of you and that when we read this thing, it's not just me talking at you, it's us having a conversation through the triune God who works in our midst. So as we read this text, what we're hoping is that the Holy Spirit tugs at your heart at your spirit and says, this is how I'm revealing myself to you. And so we're going to pray for that. And we're also going to pray that you pray for me a little bit because I got one less hour of sleep and I'm not a morning person. All right. So uh, let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for our time together today. No matter what time we meet, I'm thankful that you are good. I'm thankful that you gave us, you revealed yourself in the scriptures. I'm thankful that every time we open it, the spirit speaks in and through them to change us and make us look more like Jesus. So I'd ask today, if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just silently pray to yourself that the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit this morning. And then I'd ask that you pray for me, just that I might be edifying and encouraging and that the Lord might, the Spirit might speak through me in a way that reveals his character as we talk about um, his scriptures. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, there you go, everybody. We're going to keep you awake this morning, all right? So let's talk about our text real quick. It's for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Let's talk about what a doxology is, because this is commonly referred to as the doxology to the Lord's Prayer. And that word doxology is two Greek words put together, doxa and logos, glory and word or spoken. So it's a spoken glory over something or somebody. We see them all throughout scriptures, right? One of my favorite ones is Romans eleven thirty six. 36. It says, for him... From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Ephesians 3 is a great doxology. For to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond what we ask or think. 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What doxologies did was after a long chunk of either a prayer or a teaching, they reminded us the point of it in the first place. They called us back in, and like good endings do, gave us the meat of what we're supposed to focus on at the very end of something. And so you see them throughout the scriptures. You see them in Jude as well. You can go if you want to. The very last verses in Jude are a great doxology. And, and what we find out is in our text, um, it's a doxology to the Lord's Prayer. And in some of your Bibles, it's there, and some it's not. Let me talk about why for two seconds. And if you want more on this, about two or three years ago, they all blend together now. A couple years ago, we did a sermon series on question and answers, and, and there was one whole sermon on the reliability of the scriptures, on, on why when you pick up your Bible, you can trust it. And what we did was we applied textual criticism that we would apply to any other written document at any time in any part of the world. And we said, when you compare our Bible with the same standards to any other book that we say is legitimate, how does it fare? And hey, spoiler alert, it blows the other ones out of the water, right? And I'd love to have a longer conversation on the reliability of scripture, but you can listen to it and then come talk to me about it, okay? Um, It's a beautiful book. And We have so many manuscripts that tell us that what we have are the actual words of Jesus because we don't have the original manuscripts. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of them, right? And so what happens when you interpret the scriptures is the more we know, sometimes it changes what we know and not in a scary way. There's only a handful of these examples in the New Testament, like a handful, and none of them affect theology, but this is an example of where they had some manuscripts that had this end doxology on it, and then a couple hundred years later, in the 15th, 16th century, I believe, we found some earlier manuscripts that were predated from the other ones, and they didn't have it in there. And we found some since then that didn't. And so that's why some translations kept it because they think it was really said. And some now say, you know what? The earlier manuscripts we have, which is what we use in textual criticism to find authenticity, the earliest manuscripts to the actual sayings itself, and we have them within decades of some New Testament books, that determines what was probably actually there. And they don't have this in there. Yeah? So when we talk about this doxology, there are some people that think it belongs there and some that don't. I really, really like it. I grew up saying it. And let me tell you why I like it. So even if it's not in the actual scriptures themselves, the original manuscripts, I think it's rich in tradition. I think it points to our tradition together. There's a a teaching um, that was probably written at the end of the first century called the Didache, and it was literally the the 12 teachings of the apostles to how to live out their faith in a Gentile world. It taught on the Lord's table and on rituals and rites like baptisms, and then it taught on morality. How do we live out our faith, right? And it was widely known and widely quoted. And in this book, that is the teachings of the apostles, it literally says to pray this prayer three times a day and the doxology is included. So they said it as an early church. Often they said it like this. They said over and over again, this doxology belongs in the text with the way Jesus said to pray because it is rich in theology and it reflects what God wanted. John Calvin said it's so appropriate to this place that it ought not to be omitted. And when you think about it, we have things all the time that do the same thing. We have truths that point to a greater truth. We have things that aren't in scripture, but that still are true. This is my favorite example, hate the sin and love the sin, and we've heard that said. It's not in the Bible. I can't quote you a chapter and verse. And what we see is that that phrase actually backs itself up in human history. Gandhi actually quoted it a long time ago. Augustine, a church father in 429 AD said, and I quote, with love for mankind and hatred of sins, Where this probably comes from is Jude 1, 22 and 23. 
It says, in having mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, so mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That idea of flesh there is sinful nature. So it's saying love people, have mercy on people, but do not like their actions or the sins that cause brokenness in our world, right? It's this idea that, that we have words and phrases that reveal truth, even if it's not in the scriptures themselves, if you want to believe that, if you want to believe this wasn't actually there. And we, we do that all the time, too, in churches and organizations and as people. If you've been a member at Crossroads for a long time, back in the day, there's this phrase that predates me that um, I hear people still say every once in a while. I think it's snapping and tapping, right? It's this idea that we want to live out our faith in a way that doesn't just mimic others, but comes from a genuine place of following Jesus. It's not in the scriptures. It's a truth that reveals a greater truth that's found in the scriptures. So when we talk about the doxology on the Lord's Prayer, what I love about it is the rich tradition that's given to it by the early church, by the apostles, by the history of who we are as a people, as a family of God. It gives it weight. It makes it valid. And we also see it in scriptures too, said in different ways. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what you see as you study this phrase, if you don't think it belongs in the scriptures because it wasn't in the original manuscripts, at the very best, you have to give it weight. At the very best, you have to acknowledge that it reflects the character of God and it reflects the point of the prayer in the first place. Because here's the deal. Andy talked about it a little bit. In the first century world, and as the church grew up a little bit, for a long time, creeds and phrases and doxologies held a different place than we know them to hold in our world today. Because most early Christians couldn't read and write. The Christian movement started as a poor movement. It didn't influence a lot of kings. It influenced a lot of wives and husbands. It influenced a lot of people that were lesser because if you were rich and you read a document or heard somebody say, hey, give your stuff away and, and, and the great will serve and that's what we're going to find greatness as, you didn't love it in a power-centric culture. And so the beginning of the Christian movement for at least the first 315-ish years was people that were poor and persecuted, and it grew like crazy. And in those times, they couldn't read and they couldn't write, and you didn't have a whole Bible where you were. You might have had a letter or two at the church in your city, at the house where you gathered in your city. And so what they would do to remember the truth of scriptures that they might not have had there, they would memorize creeds. They would memorize creeds or doxologies and it would remind them of their boundaries. And because they couldn't pick up their iPhone and download seven different versions of their Bibles, it would remind them what truth was when they didn't have access or readily available access to reading the scriptures. And for the most part, they probably couldn't read anyway. So it served beautiful, huge redemptive purposes, doxologies and creeds in the history of the church that we don't get now because we don't need it like they needed it. And so when we talk about the doxology in the Lord's Prayer, really what we're talking about is the weight and the richness and the history that tradition plays in our church. And so we're going to dive into it today because I think it's beautiful and I think even if you don't believe it was in the original manuscripts, it's worth studying because it reflects a God who is good. Yeah? So it goes something like this. We've said it before, let's say it again. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And at the very beginning, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the idea of kingdom in week two of our series. The idea of kingdom is central to what Jesus came to do. 
And sometimes we've taught that Jesus just came to save souls, and that is not the truth of Scripture. He came to usher in a new way of life. He literally came to say there's a better way to live that doesn't end in destruction and in death. There's a better way to live that I'm standing for now. And everywhere he went, it says in the Scriptures, he taught the truth of the kingdom of God. That if we follow God as he rules and reigns, life can be put back together again. We see it, one of my favorite examples is Matthew chapter 12. There's a story of a a man possessed by demons. I'm going to read a bit to you and we'll get through the whole story here in the next 10 minutes. But the first verse in verse 22 starts like this. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that the man could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah? So this is what Jesus did. As he went around healing people, he said, there is a better way. I came to bring it. It's called my kingdom. Follow under my idea of authority and not the one you're living in now. He came to pronounce that there's a better way that doesn't end in brokenness. He came to say, my kingdom is finally here. My influence is finally here. And that's what the New Testament is about. That's what Jesus came to do. And so when we talk about kingdom theology, and again, we talked about it a lot a few weeks ago, What we're talking about is how big is God's influence in your life? What we're talking about is over what spaces does God your filter? Over what spaces does God rule and reign in your life? Because what he came to say is that I deserve to rule over all of them. Because if life is done that way, it's better. Tim Keller defines kingdom like how he says it. He says, if asking God, it's asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, emotions, desires, thoughts, and commitments. Graham Goldsworthy says the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. A couple weeks ago, we defined kingdom and said the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule, his full influence on the world. And that's our job as a church, is every single day, everywhere we go, to live in a way that reflects God's influence in our life. Whether it's this church on a Sunday morning in daylight savings time or Target when we leave this place, right? Is we are supposed to reflect that there's a better way. And every time we step towards that, hopefully people see hope. Every time we step into God's way for our lives and our work and our marriage and our friendships and our relationships, every time people see that as we parent, every time people want to look at us and say, why do you have hope? Because I stepped towards Jesus and his rule and his reign and his kingdom. And one day it will be fully realized when Jesus comes back and writes the world again, like he created in the first place. But in the middle, we get to live out the hope of Jesus in a messy situation because we believe it's better with his influence over the influence of our world, over the people that broke it, which is us. And so when we talk about the reign and rule of Jesus, it's us taking steps towards Jesus's influence in all aspects of our lives in every moment of every day because we believe life's better that way. A.W. Tozer says this, I love it. He says, I want to be so holy that when heaven arrives, when the kingdom fully arrives, the leap won't be so great, (laughs) you know? It's this idea that we're moving towards something. And when he says heaven, he means the full influence. That's what heaven is, is the space and place where God's influence is fully felt and realized to bless all people in all places. And so he says, I want to I want to live in such a way where people see that I get closer and closer, knowing full well one day God will come back. Uh, N.T. Wright says, if the church isn't prepared to subvert the kingdoms of the world with the kingdom of God, the only honest thing would be to give up praying this prayer altogether. We're talking about Matthew 6. saying it's our job 
What I love about this, and again, go back and listen to kingdom. What I love about this is the word before it. He said, for yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. And it brings out a tension in me. I have this, I have this desire, and it's subtle sometimes, and it's loud others, but I have this desire, because I'm a middle child, to make things about me. It's just what it is. And I think you do too, if you're honest with yourself. We like to be owners. We like to take things and say, this is mine, put our stamp on it, put flags on moons, and say, we own this thing because it shows control and power and sovereignty. But that isn't what the kingdom of God is in our lives. The kingdom of God is God's control, not ours. In the story with the demoniac in Matthew 12, so Jesus heals this guy. And you feel like if somebody healed somebody in front of you, you might be excited that a blind guy can see and a deaf guy can hear. As a deaf guy myself, I would be fully excited for this, you know? And this is what their response is in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. So what's happening in the world there in the first century with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, is as Jesus came and taught about kingdom, what he did was he took authority away from the religious leaders and gave it back to God, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it because they felt their influence wane as God's influence grew. And we like things to be about ourselves, and we like to say we own things. And so as their influence drew down and God's drew um, up, God's grew up, what we found was they resisted Jesus. So they just saw a miracle, and instead of celebrate what God had done, they decided to say this must have been from Satan. And Jesus says this. He knew their thoughts, and he said back to them, any kingdom divided by a civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. If Satan's casting out Satan, he's divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. And if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcist? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you've said. But if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom has arrived among you. So he looks at these people that made it about them and he said, it's not about you. And you think it is. You think you own God and you don't. You think you own God's spaces and you don't. He says, your kingdom, your power, your glory. And the first thing we have to recognize is that we don't own this world, God does. And sometimes that's difficult because we live in it. So God lets us, as co-heirs, as children of God, live in his world, but we don't own it. And let me tell you, I was thinking about this, and I went back to, uh, (laughs) I grew up a couple miles from here in Double Oak, and so guess what we had in our backyard? A giant oak tree, right? Uh, And it it still is there. It's huge. It's one of the bigger trees I've seen, and we have an acre lot, and I was 13 years old, and so I was at the height of my wisdom. And... My buddy was over, and we were 13-year-old boys. So what did we like to do? Like jump off trampolines into pools or jump off ledges onto couches or break things. That's what we did, and we were really good at it. So my parents were gone, and we said, dude, there's a big tree, and we found an axe. And <laughs> so we said, I've got a great idea. I've seen it. It looks fun. Let's go chop the tree down, you know? Um, and this thing literally, man, I mean, it was, it, I, I can't put arms around this thing, and, and so... Here's the deal. In that moment, I was like, yeah, it's my house. It's my tree. It's my axe. Let's go, you know? And I knew nothing then. I knew nothing then about perspective. I knew nothing about property value. I knew nothing about what cutting down a tree would do to property value. I knew nothing about how trees work. I thought I could hack at it for a while and it'll be just fine, you know? Like, it's not going to get sick and die. And so we went and we hacked at it for about 15 minutes and realized that it's not as easy as it looks on TV and got tired and we were done. 
Then I think we put the axe back, or I was 13, we probably left it there. And um, anyway, and, and, and I had no perspective on what I was doing, and my dad got home, and guess what he gave me? Perspective. Um, it's a mild way to put it. He comes in, he's like, what did you do to the tree, right? And I was like, my twin brother's here. He's like, stop it. I was like, okay, it was me. So I said, what did you do to the tree? I said, we just... We, you know, chopped it down. I mean, it's a tree. It's our tree. And he said, it's not our tree. It's my tree. It's my tree. You live here. Do you get the difference? My tree. I pay for the tree. You live here. My house. You live in my house. You do not own anything here. One of several conversations like that I had in my angsty teenage years with my parents, right? But what it shows us, what it reminded me of was in this moment, I didn't own anything. And that's a good thing because I had no idea what I was doing, (laughs) I didn't have any idea about property values or what that would do. I wasn't thinking outside of myself. I had no maturity, so I didn't need to be an owner. Being an owner is hard and heavy. And so just a couple things. Why it's a good thing that we're not owners and that God is, is because then in the middle of that, we can trust God with the outcome, and it's not up to us. And that's a beautiful weight off my shoulders, (laughs) you know? It's a beautiful weight to know that I can get up here today and completely botch this sermon and not affect God's plan for justice in my world. That's really great. I need that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I don't try and study and learn. So a couple things that I think understanding that God's kingdom is God's kingdom and God's kingdom isn't owned by me and it's not owned by Crossroads and it's not owned by the village and it's not owned by America. God's kingdom is God's kingdom. It's important to know because one of the things that does, and hear me when I say this, is it frees us from the burden of understanding. And I want to flesh that out a bit. So when I say the burden of understanding, I mean that I... I'm the kind of guy that my natural instinct is probably not to follow rules. But if I don't know why the rule makes sense, I definitely won't follow rules. I need to know why. Don't tell me to do something if I can't see the purpose behind it, right? Sometimes when I follow Jesus, I don't know why. I follow God and I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And really what I'm doing when I'm asking God why and choose to disobey in the moments when I don't understand is I'm challenging his perspective versus mine. And when I say the burden of understanding, in no way, in no way am I saying that we shouldn't try and understand. In no way am I saying that we shouldn't study and read and learn and grow. In no way am I saying just punt and say God is faithful and sometimes we have to take things in faith. That is not an excuse because God gave us a mind to think through things and study. What I'm saying is that God is bigger than me and there are some things I won't understand. And in those moments when I don't, I can trust that he's still good. The burden of understanding. Because I'm never going to get to the end of how big my God is. It reminds me of a story that I don't know when I heard it. It was years ago. I think it was in high school or junior high and it just stuck with me. I don't know why it stuck with me. Probably because the snake's involved. But um, it stuck with me and there's a missionary. And he was living in Africa. And he said, my daughter was swimming in this pond. And and here's the deal, guys. I've watched too many Discovery shows. I'm never letting my kids swim in a pond in Africa, all right? (laughs) You know, things are going to kill her. But anyway, he thought it was a good idea. So his daughter's swimming in this pond in Africa, and and she's coming back to the house. It's probably 40, 50 yards. I forget what he said. He's getting closer, and there's this tree in the middle. And I guess sometimes in Africa, there are pythons that sit in trees, and they lunge at things that, that, you know, go by them. And so there's this four or five-year-old daughter and she's coming into the house and doesn't see this snake and the dad looks up and sees this snake and he yells at his kid and he just says, whatever his kid's name was, get down, right? And so she like dropped and hit the floor. And as she did that, the snake missed her and then he went and got his daughter. And my point there was, I don't know if she's going to die or not. I'm not trying to be morbid. It probably would have been a fun battle, right? But 
I think what that shows is in that moment, even though she didn't understand, she knew and trusted the character of her father. I think when we don't feel like owners, but we know that God is good, it frees us from having to understand everything because we do know and can trust the character of the God that we follow. The burden of understanding, right? The second thing I think it does um, is when we don't have this idea that that we own, I think what it does is it allows us... um, like we said before, it frees us from the weight of the outcome. It, it allows us to understand that God's in control and we can trust and know that God's in control. It frees us from feeling like in any way I will influence God's outcome. That's a beautiful place to walk in. It's like, I bought a house in the last year. I wish somebody would have told me how hard it is to own something, <laughs> like to be in charge and control of something, because I don't know what I'm doing. And there's all these things that are broken and need to be fixed. And frankly, I wish somebody would have told me this. I'd still be renting. It was so much easier. I could just enjoy my days when I was renting. Like something broke, it'll get fixed, not my fault. But I'm going to keep on taking care of it, right? It frees us from the weight of the consequences of the final outcome, maybe not the day-to-day. And so when we talk about God's kingdom come, we really have to divorce ourselves from this natural inclination we have to own it and see the beauty in the fact that we don't. By the grace of God, we get to enjoy it every single day. And part of the reason why it's not good for me to think that I own it is simply because I don't have the power to maintain or deliver any of it, right? So he says, mine is, thine is, it's my kingdom. And he says, my power for yours is the kingdom and yours is the power. Let's talk about power for a second because what God's doing is saying my kingdom's going to come. But if you don't have the power to make that kingdom a reality, then really you're not worthy of following in the first place. And why it's God's kingdom is not mine is because I can't deliver the reality that God is promising that one day wrongs will be righted. Can't do it. And let me take two minutes real quick. It's probably like four, but we're going to talk about the power of God, okay? So I think this is really important. Um, When we talk about the power of God or the the omnipotence of God, meaning that he's all powerful, I think sometimes we we don't quite understand what we're talking about. So we live in a superhero culture where everything is extreme. And when we say God is all powerful, we think that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, because he's all powerful. And let me tell you something that's actually not true. I've talked to people that don't believe in God. I want to stump theologians. And I'm not saying I'm one of them, but they'll ask questions and say, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And then drop their pen like I got you, right? And my answer is no. Because here's the deal. The idea, the omnipotence of God is not found in Scripture. What's found in Scripture is the idea that God can do anything he determines to do, but he can't do things that act outside of his character. That's what we talked about last week. So when we talk about sin in God, and evil in God, what we said was God is, the word is impeccability, that God cannot sin because he doesn't have a desire towards sin. And why that matters, it might sound like it doesn't, it really does. Why that matters is because God's not up in heaven fighting the desire to sin for all eternity. Because mine's tied to his. And what happens one day if he chooses sin? God can never do that. When we talk about the omnipotence of God, what we mean is God does everything he determines to do, but he can't do things that he can't do that are outside of his nature and his character. And what that means for me is that God's goodness isn't going anywhere forever. Because sometimes I feel like I'm divided on do I walk in God's ways or not God's ways. There's a desire for sin. It says in the scriptures, God never has that. So when we talk about the power of God, God can do absolutely anything he determines to do, but he cannot act outside of his nature and his character. He will never sin. 
And that's important because I need to know that the goodness of God isn't going anywhere because my future's tied to it <laughs> as a follower of Jesus. And so when he says that, um, that kingdoms, and then when it talks about yours is the power, what he's talking about when it says power there is the power to make his kingdom a reality. What we do is what he's saying is Jesus says it, my way is better, I can actually make this happen, follow me. It's better than the road you're walking down now. I can actually make that reality a reality. It's what we do in politics all the time in every election. Somebody gets up there and says that your life isn't as good as it could be, but if you vote for me, I have the power to make it that way. It's what we do from seventh grade presidential student class council um, elections to the ones now. Speaking of, I ran for seventh grade student class council president, everybody, and I won. And let me tell you how I won. Because it's the same thing that's talking about here. I ran against this other person. I don't know who it was. And in seventh grade, and you're running a campaign, <clears throat> one of the bigger line items is your candy budget, okay? And so... I remember that this person, I thought it was a girl, it might not have been, I can't remember, it doesn't matter. She made this little poster and she had these handouts and there were these fun-sized Snickers that were attached to everything. You know, vote for me and gave her fun-sized Snickers. So you know what I did? I went to the store and I came back the next day and I handed out king-sized Snickers to everybody, okay? Yep, it's true. I absolutely said, hey, don't settle for a fun-sized life. <laughs> that, was, that was my mantra back then, but that would fly, guys. Anyway, so what I did was promise people that I have the power to give them this big of a candy bar, and in seventh grade, that's all that matters, you know? And so what happens was you win the election, and you promise that you have the power to make their dreams a reality. That's what Jesus does. He comes and he says, hey, it's my kingdom, and the reason why it's my kingdom is because I have the power to make it happen when nobody else does. And what we see in scripture, and we're gonna go to, we've been through a lot, and we're, gonna, we're gonna throw up a lot of scriptures on the screen today just so you feel like you're getting your money's worth at Crossroads Bible Church, okay? Um, and, and what we're gonna do is talk right now about, about how God's power over the things that we wanna escape from exist. So if God's promising a new way and a new kingdom, he's gotta prove to me that he's bigger than the ways that mess us up now. He's gotta prove that he's bigger than the brokenness that exists as Christians. We call that sin. And we see scriptures again and again of God saying, it's already been done. Romans 6, 6, we know our old man was crucified and with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He goes on in verses 12 to 14. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you, not, so that you won't obey its desires. You don't present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. For sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What he's talking about there is simply that no longer are we bound by sin, are we bound by brokenness, but we have a way out. And it's not because we're strong enough, it's because Jesus was. What he's saying is the power of Christ sets us free, not our own. It's, a, it's an idea that he's saying that what I promised I can actually deliver on because I've already, all that was past tense, I've already beat it. Might not look like it right here, right now, but you don't have the perspective I do. It is done. And so as a Christian, as a Christ follower, I walk in the hope, in the truth, in the knowledge that my slavery to sin has been broken because Christ was powerful enough. And that's really what we're signing up for when we say we want to follow in the kingdom of God. And sin leads to one place that leads to death. And so he says, not only have I conquered the brokenness in the world that is sin, which is the things that you don't want to see happen, which is the injustice you see all around you, but sin always leads to death. And let me tell you what I did over death. It says in Corinthians, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Jesus. What he's saying is that I'm putting the world back together. It's already done because of me, not because of you. And this is one of the reasons why I started to follow and still follow Jesus to this day. So we've talked about it before, but I think all religions exist to solve or answer two primary questions that we have. All really ways of thinking exist to do that, right? So I think we need to have an answer for the question, why are we here? We need purpose. I think they're instilled into us by a creator, by the way. And then two, I think every religion tries to answer the question, why does injustice exist? I look around, I need to know why I'm here, and then I look around and I see broken things that I intrinsically know are broken, and I need to know how it got that way, and I want to know how we're going to fix it. Why I love Christianity is you can go through the other religions, and I think atheism is included in this. You can go through all the other religions, and you can say that most of their solutions are the people that broke it fix it. God says that your job isn't to fix it because you can't, because you broke it. (laughs) He says, I'm going to step into the brokenness caused by the people and fix what they couldn't. I'm going to do it through my power and my might. I'm going to bring my kingdom. And so Jesus says, I will right the wrongs one day. And so when we talk about the power of God, I could, I could get up here and tell you example after example of seas splitting in the scriptures and other people being healed and being brought back to dead, uh, brought back to life from death. And we can get up here and talk about those examples. But I really do believe the most powerful example we have of the power of God is to change lives of the people around us. I do. I had a friend of mine who would talk about it and he'd say, the best example I have of the power of God is me 20 years ago versus me today. And he used to keep journals and if you don't do this, maybe it's a good idea. And just read back through who you were and who God is making you now. I think we overlook it, but it's a beautiful testament to God's work, not just one time, but every day, the monotony of the everyday. God working in and through our Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays to develop a community that's bringing healing and not hurting, that's reconciling and not breaking. It's a picture of what he's doing. It is the power of God on display. And so he says, here's the deal. It's not just my kingdom, it's my power. He says, because it's my kingdom and my power, he's going to say, and my glory, right? So it's the kingdom of God, it's the power of God, and it's the glory of God. And if you, if you think about it, really what he's doing is talking to the people in the first century that prayed the wrong way. So he began before this whole prayer, and it's in verse 9. He says, do not be like them, talking about the religious leaders, for your father knows what they need before you ask him, but pray this way. And he launches into the way to pray, and what he's juxtaposing there is the idea that prayer is for your good and not God's good. So in the first century, you had these religious leaders that prayed for the wrong reasons. You see it in verse 5. It says, whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. What they would do is they'd go to the most crowded corner, they'd throw their hands up in the air, these are the religious leaders, and they'd pray as loud as they could and use the most churchy words they could. They'd use the big words that, that showed people that they really were close to God, you know? And look, here's, I, I think, just like we all want to make owners of God's kingdom ours, we all also want to glorify ourselves. I think when we pray, we've all been in that place where you've been in a small group and somebody prays and you're like, oh my goodness, he's a professional prayer. He must be really close to God. And then it's your turn to pray out loud and you're like, I just, <laughs> I don't want to get everybody sick, you know? Because you feel vulnerable. Because you don't think that you're good enough. We all aren't. That's why we're here. 
Because in some way, you think that how you pray reflects on your glory and not God's. And so he says, I don't care what words you use. I care about the heart behind the words that you use. It's the point of why he's telling him to pray this way. So Jesus walks down this list and says, it's not about your glory. It's not about how good you think you are. It's not about how others think about how good you are, how righteous you are. It's always, always, always about my glory. John Stott says it like this, but in the Lord's Prayer, Christians are obsessed with God, with his name, with his kingdom, and with his will, not with theirs. True Christian prayer is always a preoccupation with God and his glory. Because, Because when we pray, what we're doing is attributing glory to the only place glory belongs. And we have this desire sometimes to, to misappropriate glory. And what that happens when we misappropriate glory is it causes a fundamental breaking of systems when you put it on a person that can't handle it, right? So for example, I saw this this week. I thought it was great. You've all heard the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Yes, all guys said, okay. Uh, and if their wife's looking at me like, mm, so good, you know? Uh, here's the deal. That's really unhealthy. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is unhealthy because it doesn't, A, in any way, that doesn't back a biblical version of what marriage is and mutual submission and love coming together to mirror what Christ does. But two, it puts too much glory on one person. And this other side of this picture that I saw said it's not happy wife, happy life. It's happy spouse, happy house, right? The idea that we're in this together, that glory is not for one person because one person in our world being broken can't handle the glory. God can. And we're saying, if I'm getting all glory, my brokenness will take somebody else's for myself. It'll turn into selfishness. Selfishness is about my desires over the good of other people. What he's saying is God deserves all the glory because he's the only person that can handle all the glory because, and follow me here, if God is all good, then when God gets all the glory, God's good becomes our best good. It's the idea that God is the only one because he's all good that can handle all the glory. And when he gets all the glory, the system works. When he gets all the glory, everything is righted. When he gets all the glory, if he's all good, it's going to end in our good. It's the rising tide idea that if it rises, all ships do as well. And we believe this for years as the church. There's these things that we used to write, we still do sometimes, called catechisms, and they're question and answer formats to express theological truths. And the most famous is the Westminster, and it says it like this, the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is, the glory, uh, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The idea that the way the system is supposed to work is all the glory is supposed to go back to God because he's only good, and when that happens, we enjoy life to the fullest the way we're supposed to. Because it's his kingdom, and it's sustained by his power, and the world only works when he gets all the glory. And sometimes we've got to fight ourselves in that process. We have to fight it. And so at the end of our prayer, what he's doing is he's making this case that the centrality of our prayer belongs around God. He's reminding us of that. It's a perspectival argument because prayer changes your perspective. And then he says a beautiful phrase. He says, for yours be the kingdom and the power and the glory. And then he just says, forever. And we're winding down on this prayer thing. And so sometimes when we wind down on prayers, we kind of tune out a little bit because we know the end is near, you know? And, and he says, may yours be all these things forever. What I love about this is kind of the picture that's being painted. It's, it's the idea that as he's ending the prayer, it's kind of like when you tuck your kids in at night and the darkness is scary. And what you say to him is, I'm here, and I care for you, and I will be here in the morning. 
and it gives you the sense of security of our future, that I don't need to be scared of the dark because then I'm going to wake up and you're going to be here. He's saying that God is in control. His kingdom is coming. His power is great enough. He is going to get all the glory, and that's never, ever, ever going to change. Forever. And we see it all throughout the scriptures. John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that this is Jesus. In me you'll have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage. I have, past tense, conquered the world, even if we don't see it yet. It says in Revelation, which is a shadowing, a foreshadowing of the future, it says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. It's this picture that God's not going anywhere and his goodness isn't going anywhere. And I need that. (laughs) That the centrality of all glory belongs to God and it's for all of our good forever. And then it ends, like we end all our prayers, just amen. And I don't know about you, but when I hear amen sometimes, I don't even think about what I'm saying. It's just what we're supposed to say to end prayers. We've all been there before when we know it's coming. It's like on Thanksgiving and you're about to eat. You've been waiting all day because everything's late and the Cowboys just lost. So you're going to bury your emotions in the gravy. And, and somebody prays and they want to show people they're a prayer. And so they go long, you know. And you like have the mashed potatoes on the fork ready to go. When the amen happens, you can eat and it's not going to be poison to you because you didn't eat before the prayer. I know that's how it's taught to you, but you know, I'm very strict. Anyway, so what it's saying is sometimes we we flash through prayers and we get to the end just so at the amen we can say it while shoving food in our mouths. It becomes something that's route and routine instead of something that has meaning. But for centuries, the idea of amen was a beautiful term that drew people together and it literally means may it be so. So when we say amen together, it means may that be so. I have a friend of mine who's got a two-year-old, and <laughs> the idea of amen is kind of like she, she knows three things she's supposed to say to be a classy lady, right? To be a classy southern lady, and those words are, you're welcome, thank you, and please. And so her parents sometimes, when things happen, will say, Nora, what do you say? And she'll say, please. Nora, what do you say? You're welcome. Nora, what do you say? Thank you. That's it. All right. And then she moves down our list because she knows that's the word that goes in that fill-in-the-blank spot. And that's how we feel sometimes with amen. And what he's saying when he ends with amen is it's not just something that fills in the blank that ends the prayer. It's not just the period. It is the cry and the plea that all the things that we prayed for might actually be our current reality. And we say it together. And what, what it means when he says this, it's actually, it's literally uh, praise and that's what I love about this prayer and all prayers. We've been in prayers for about three months now at Crossroads. And this is the last week. And you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, amen. But what we're doing is when we pray, it's all about the God who's worthy of our praise. Every time. And so the, the, the prayer of Jesus starts with our Father art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Worthy are you to be praised. And then it ends with may your kingdom by your power and all the glory go to you forever, amen. It ends with praise because when we enter into a place of praise, no matter what we're going through, it reminds us who we are and it changes our perspective because prayer changes things. That's what we talked about in January. Eugene Peterson said it this way, I love it. A changed world begins with us and a changed us begins when we pray. And so prayer reminds us that God's worthy of praise, not us, that his kingdom is coming on ours and that his power is bringing you here, not our efforts. <laughs> I need to be reminded of that. And that's why 
Every Sunday morning we start and we end with worship, with praise, because it realigns our perspective. It's not just because we like the way it feels. There's thought behind it, because that's what we're supposed to do. All prayer is an act of praise, and when we praise a worthy God, we reorder our perspective and remind ourselves of our, remind ourselves of our role in God's kingdom. When we praise God, when we pray to God, it changes our perspective. And it's a beautiful picture of the reality that we want to come because it's his kingdom, his power, for his glory. May that never change, and may it come now, let it be so. And so we're going to end today, and we're going to sing a doxology that I grew up singing as a Methodist. And it's just prayer that all the glory might go to God, that all the glory might be God's, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit might be glorified. It's a prayer that we have as his church. It reminds us of our perspective. It reminds us that God's worthy of praise. It reminds us that our job as people, every time we pray, our job as people is to worship and give glory to God. And when we do that, we see his kingdom and we see the hope of what's to come. Let me pray for us and let's sing a song. God, I'm thankful that we are creatures made to to praise you. I'm thankful that we're not creatures made to praise me or anybody else in this room because we've tried that and it, it just breaks things. And I pray that as we end our series on the Lord's Prayer, that it reminds us of our position, that it gives us perspective, that you're worthy of praise, and it gives us security knowing that you're not going anywhere because prayer endures forever. And as we sing and as we praise, Holy Spirit, might you encourage us and we leave this place knowing that God is good now and forever. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can we stand and sing the doxology together?